Shalom everyone, this is Chris Shoemaker, also known as Yehuda Ben Shomer, and welcome to the Monthly Musings. This Monthly Musings is called the Hubbub of Haggai. Haggai comes from the Hebrew word Hag, meaning feast, and so Haggai means festive. His name reminds us of the Feast of the Lord, and thus obedience to Torah by keeping the feast, and in some way, mostly through the sacrifices, Haggai's name leads us to the temple, and the temple seems to be the theme of Haggai's book. He, along with Zechariah, encourages those who were, who were returning from exile, uh, the exile in which Zephaniah uh, predicted. Because of chapter 2, verse 3, it appears Haggai was born before the destruction of the temple and thus may have been old enough to remember the glory of Solomon's temple before Nebuchadnezzar raised it in 586 BCE. And if so, Haggai would have been in his 70s or 80s after the writing of this prophetic book, which bears his name. Perhaps due to his age, death may account for the brevity of his ministry and book. Haggai was written approximately uh, 520 BCE and is the first of three post-exilic books among the 12 minor prophets in the Tanakh, uh, you know, w along with Haggai, it's Zechariah and Malachi. Haggai is the second shortest of the minor prophetic books and he was a contemporary of Zechariah. Haggai is mentioned by name twice in the book of Ezra. Another longer prophetic book which focuses on the rebuilding of Jerusalem's wall and getting back to Torah obedience, which ultimately led to revival. Because of the details given, being the second year of the reign of King Darius of Persia, 520 BCE, who inherited Israeli captives from Babylon, whom they conquered, the events of this book can be dated more accurately than other prophecies in Scripture. If you'll recall, Daniel prophesied to King Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, through the quote-unquote handwriting on the wall, that the Medo-Persians would conquer Babylon. This according to Daniel chapter 5. Cyrus was king of Persia, uh, whom... Uh, whom the Lord, de whom the Lord declared the time of Judah's uh, return from exile. So Ezra chapter one verses one through four says, "Now in the year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia." The Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judea, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God, which is in Jerusalem. And whosoever remains in any place where he sojourns, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts beside the freewill offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So Darius was later uh, was a later successor to Cyrus, king of Persia. He reiterated Cyrus's original decree at the time when the rebuilding of Jerusalem had started, but was not yet complete. Ezra chapter 6 verses 1 through 12 says, Then Darius the king made a decree, and, and, and search was made in the house of the rolls, uh, where the treasury was laid up in Babylon. And there was found, and there was found at Achmetha, in the place that is in the province of the Medes, a roll wherein was recorded thus. In the first year of Cyrus, uh, the king, the same Cyrus, the king, made a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be builded, 
the place the place where they offer sacrifices and let the foundations therefore be strongly laid the height thereof three score cubits and the breadth thereof three score cubits with three rows of great stones and a row of new timber and let the expenses be given out of the king's house and also let the gold and the silver vessels of the house of god which nebuchadnezzar took forth out of the temple which is in jerusalem which is at Jerusalem, and brought unto Babylon, be restored and brought again unto the temple, which is in Jerusalem, every one to his place, a place, and place them in the house of God. Therefore, Tatnia, governor beyond the river, and uh, Sethar Boznai, and your companions, the Afarsachites, which are beyond the river, be ye far from thence, let the work of this house of God alone, uh, let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build the house of God in his place. Moreover, I make a decree that you shall do to uh, you shall do to the elders of these Jews for the building of this house of God, that of the king's goods, even of the tribute beyond the river. Forthwith, uh, expenses be given unto these men, uh, that they be not hindered, and that which they have need of, both young bullocks and rams and lambs for the burnt offerings of God of, of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the appointment of the priest, which are at Jerusalem. Let it be given them by day, uh, given them day by day without fail, that they may offer sacrifices of sweet savor unto the Lord, unto the God of heaven, and pray that the life of the king and of his sons also, I have made a decree that whosoever shall alter this word, let timber be pulled down from his house, uh, and being set up, let him be hanged thereon, and let his house be made a dunghill for this. And the God that hath caused his name to dwell there destroy all kings and people that shall put to their hand to alter and to destroy this house of God which is at Jerusalem. I, Darius, had made a decree, and let it be done with speed. Wow. So King Darius gave the go-ahead to restart the work of the rebuilding of the temple in 521 BCE. Ezra 4.24 says, Then cease the work of the house of God which is at Jerusalem. So it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Haggai ministered in 520 BCE between the months of August and December, which on the Hebrew calendar is Elul and Kislev. During these four months, Haggai delivered four messages that were meant to do two things. Encourage and support Zerubbabel, the Jewish governor, with whom the exiles returned, and Joshua, the high priest, and to encourage them to organize and mobilize the people to build the temple and to live a life obedient to Torah. However, due to opposition by, outs uh, by outside enemies and inside by self-centeredness, all that was accomplished was the temple's foundation being laid. Work on the temple began again in 516 BCE, but no one knows for sure whether Haggai lived to see its completion. Rambam and Rashi said in reference to Pirkei Avot 1.1 that Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the last three prophets, were among the 120 members of the Great Assembly, which led Israel during the Second Temple Era. It is said and believed that Ezra headed this assembly, and among the leadership was Joshua the high priest, who was Ezra's nephew, Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, and others, some of which are recorded in Ezra chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. I've entitled this commentary, uh, The Hubbub of Haggai, because when something of great excitement occurs, sometimes people ask, what's all the hubbub, bub? Meaning, what's all the excitement about? 
Haggai's name conjures excitement, for his name means festive. So what's all the hubbub of Haggai? The excitement of the opportunity to return from exile, rebuild the temple, and Jerusalem to rebuild it as well, and get back to living a Torah-obedient Torah lives. All this causes us to excitedly look forward to the rebuilding of the third temple and the return of the prophet, priest, and king, Messiah Yeshua. So, Haggai, chapter 1. Haggai, because of its details, can almost be read as a diary. So this is the first message which was recorded, um, the first of Elul, 428, uh, or 4280, I'm sorry, which would correspond to August 29th, 520 BCE. So this is dealing with the uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. So the actual Hebrew date that I gave of Elul I, uh, 4280, is unclear. This is uh, an estimated calculation. So verse 1 reads, In the second year of Darius, the, ki the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying. So now, this is where I want to kind of get into the commentary a little bit. King Darius, king of Persia, an inheritor of the exiles of Judah, when he conquered Babylon, had a much different MO, a much different method of operation when conquering nations. Where other nations made their defeated nations prisoners and slaves, Persia would sort of adopt them as Persians and make their nation a vassal nation, but allow them to maintain leadership of their of their own nation and have somewhat of an autonomy, but he but was answerable to the king of Persia ultimately. Persia would educate the nations they conquered and gave them positions in the government and of some uh, and of some standing standing of official authority so that they so that those they conquered would be won over with privileges and kindness sort of like a store that is under new management and everybody gets to keep their jobs that's kind of the way that's pictured there so Darius king of Persia who according to the Midrash was the son of Xerxes or otherwise known as Ahrosh and Esther Hadassah was very kind to the Jewish people and he allowed 50,000 exiled Jews under the command of Zerubbabel who held the title of governor and Yehoshua or Joshua the high priest those events are also recorded in the book of Ezra uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 2 through 4, chapter 2, verses uh, 64 through 65, and chapter 3, verse 2 and 5, verse 1. So after the second year of their return, only the foundation had been laid, and we can find this in Ezra 3, 8 through 10, because of harassment and threats by the Samaritans, according to Ezra chapter 4, verses 1, all the way to chapter 5, verse 24. This caused the morale to be at an all-time low and discouragement and fear were so profound that the construction stopped altogether for 16 years. Thus the reason for the pep talk from Haggai and Zechariah. Granted, another reason was to overcome the psychological discouragement in that most of the returnees uh, saw uh, saw the magnificence of Solomon's temple and knew they couldn't duplicate or surpass that. But we must trust and believe if God called us, we can do greater things. This according to John 14, 12. Remember that when setting out to do anything for Adonai, Satan, nine times out of ten, will use discouragement, usually from family and friends, uh, family and friends. So in this case, it was the half-breed Samaritan relatives who were the culprits here. 
Secondly, discord and dissatisfaction within the ranks usually follows or is simultaneously used with discouragement from the outside. The first of four stirring messages from Haggai was aimed to stir up and set fire underneath Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest, because so goes the leadership, so goes the people. We've seen it over and over with the kings in First and Second Samuel to First and Second Kings to First and Second Chronicles. Good kings equal good people. Wicked kings equal wicked people. So uh, Haggai 1 verse 2 says, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be rebuilt. The people mistook satanic opposition as God's sovereignty to cease working on the temple. They needed to be reminded and told otherwise. This verse addressed the leaders, and uh, verse 3 addresses the people. And verse 3 says, Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, now, some feel that the wording of such a verse as, and the word of the Lord came to me, means, uh, uh, means that Adonai took the pre-incarnate human form of Messiah Yeshua, for he is the word according to John 1, right? And delivered the message to the prophet, either in person or through a vision or a dream. Verse 4, it is time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed uh, houses, and this house lie waste? Ah, our God is a Jewish God. Here is a justifiable example of the famous guilt trip often employed by Jewish mothers. Here Haggai tells the exiles that they returned for the purpose of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem itself. Uh, and, and yet uh, they became self-absorbed and built themselves many, temple, many temples, built their houses and lined them with cedar. And the temple uh, used to be lined with cedar. So Haggai tells the people that they must first get their priorities straight. God's work comes first. So Haggai was really hounding on the people because they built their houses and lined them with cedar, made them like many temples because the temple itself was a structure that was lined with cedar and says, look, you got your priorities backwards. You need to just build a temporary shelter just to live in to pass the time until the temple's rebuilt. Then you can build your permanent houses. So even Messiah Yeshua put greater importance on and was zealous for the temple and its place in Israel. John 2.17, And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. John 4.24, Jesus said unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. John 6.38, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. John 9.4, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. Night comes when no man can work. And finally, Matthew 21, 12-13, And Yeshua went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the table of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, and you have made it a den of thieves. If Messiah was to bring an end to the temple and the sacrifices, as most of Christendom proclaims, then why such a zeal for it? For the simple fact that he did not come to do away with the temple or its operation and purpose. Matthew 5, 17 through 20 says, Think not. In other words, don't even let the thought cross your mind that I've come to destroy the Torah, the law, or the Nevi'im, the prophets. In other words, the Old Testament, the Tanakh. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And that word fulfill means to bring it into its full and complete meaning and understanding so it could be performed. For, for truly I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, um, 
uh, pass away, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever there sh therefore shall break one of the least of these commandments shall teach men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. He came to give it greater emphasis and meaning, the temple that is, the law that is. He came to give it and bring it into its full and complete meaning and understanding. In the Messianic and Christian arenas, the issue of salvation and Levitical animal sacrifice has caused a charged and heated debate and caused congregational and denominational splits. How were the quote-unquote Old Testament saints saved? Will there be animal sacrifice during the third temple? And when Messiah reigns, if so, why? Wouldn't animal sacrifices slap Yeshua in his sacrificial atoning work on the cross in the face? And many questions and the like circle and emerge, uh, sub, uh, submerge and emerge continuously. As a Nazarene Jew, as a Netzari Jew, let me put this worry animal to rest for you. If you don't like the answer, take it up with God and his word. If it blows down your little theological house of cards, maybe you should question the materials you've been using or the foundation it has been founded upon. God's word or tradition and doctrines of men, which is your theological house of cards been been uh, founded on, right? So let me first tackle the issue of salvation. It is the misconception of many that the Old Testament saints were saved by works, by keeping the law, the Torah, in combination with the Levitical animal sacrifices. And the New Testament saints, on the other hand, are saved by grace and Yeshua's death on the cross. I mean, how fair is that? Christians say there is only one way of salvation. This view would contradict that. This is purely a Christian false doc doctrine, and nothing can be further from the truth. So basically what I'm saying is that the Old Testament saints were not saved through the, through the works, the keeping, obedience to the Torah, and the animal sacrifices of the tabernacle and temple era, um, as opposed to the saints being saved by grace, by Yeshua's death on the cross. There's not a double standard. So how were the believers before the death and resurrection of Yeshua saved? All right. The million-dollar question, right? The saints in the Old Testament or the Tanakh were saved the exact same way the saints in the Renewed Covenant, the New Testament, were. The difference is perspective. Those in the Tanakh looked forward to and believed in, in the Messiah and his atoning work that was coming, right? So they looked forward to this 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 the the prophet, prophetic uh, Messiah to come. The Renewed Covenant saints or the New Testament saints, us, we look back and believe in the Messiah and his atoning work that already came and is coming again. So if you imagine a timeline, and in the center of the timeline is a cross. So before the cross, all the Old Testament saints were looking to the cross, looking for the Messiah that was to come, believing in the Messiah that was to come, and the work that he was going to do, and believed in that. And after the cross, you know, you have B.C., and then after the cross you have A.D., looking back after the cross, we look backwards towards the cross of the Messiah who already came and did the finished work. So both believed the same thing. It was just a difference of historical perspective, right? So, um, as I said, the renewed covenant saints, us, we look back and believe in the Messiah and his atoning work that already came and is coming again. The sacrifices of the tabernacle and temple era before Yeshua came never atoned for or removed sin. In the New Testament book of Hebrews 10.4, it says, It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. 
it is, uh, it's just rolled back. It's kind of like a credit card or, or a debit card. It's, it's rolled back and put on, on uh, put in debt until the Messiah came uh, to pay it in full, atoning for them all past, present, and future sins. And I'm basing the, all this based on Isaiah 53.6, 1 Peter 2.24, 1 John uh, 2.2, and Hebrews 1.3 and 5-10. through 10. Yeshua worked within the framework of Torah and the sacrificial system set up therein. So then what was the purpose of the animal sacrifices, you may ask? Good question. Two predominant reasons. Number one, it was, it was to be a physical object lesson that pointed to the coming Messiah and what he would do. It acted as a credit card that covered but didn't take away and rolled back the sin debt until someone, Messiah, would come along and pay it. In, time, in the time of the third temple, the sacrifices will be a reminder of the Messiah who came and what he did. This according to Isaiah 56 and Isaiah 66 and Zechariah 14, 16 through 21. The sacrifices before Yeshua came, o uh, came only to point to the Messiah which was to come. And the sacrifices after Yeshua uh, that and that which would take place during the millennial, millennial reign point back to the Messiah and his atoning work the Messiah that already came. So that's the first reason for the animal sacrifices. The second reason, it was to provide uh, um, food and materials and income for the Levitical priests and their families. This according to Leviticus chapters 5 through 10. So all the children of Israel except the tribe of Levi got a land inheritance. God said, Levi has no land inheritance. I will allot them cities to live in among the tribes, but they have no land inheritance. Their inheritance is the work of the Lord, namely the temple and its sacrifices. So what kind of God would God be if he said, okay, I'm going to give you this inheritance, and then I'm going to take it away, and you have nothing? Keep in mind that the rest of the ten tribes still have their land, and will have their land in the future. But if the sacrifices are done away with after Yeshua, and they're never to be brought back, where does that leave the Levites? They have no more inheritance. It's high and dry. And that's not the God I serve. You know, he just doesn't give an inheritance and then take it away and say, oh, well, sorry, you're out of luck. Just because my son Yeshua came, you're out of luck. Okay, so salvation is a gift from God to all who will accept Yeshua the Messiah, the living Torah, confesses, repents, and turns away from their sins. This is faith righteousness. This will result in becoming spiritually alive and indwelt with the Ruach HaKodesh of God, that is, the Holy Spirit of God. This, in turn, will cause one to desire to love, obey, and please God. One shows this by keeping, by keeping the written Torah. This is works righteousness. In other words, one will walk in the footsteps of Yeshua our Messiah by walking and following in the Torah. Before Messiah, looking ahead and looking back, salvation comes by grace through faith alone. Salvation is not earned by Torah observance. If we love him, we will keep his commandments. We will keep his Torah. A person who does this will spend eternity with him in heaven uh, uh, if one dies prior to the final resurrection or on the new earth uh, that is the world to come. Now, Haggai chapter 1 verse 5. Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Haggai tells the people that Adonai wants them to stop with their self-absorbed lives and think about how they are currently living their lives and what they were released from exile for. Verses 6 and 7, You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. 
you're cl- uh, you cl- you, you're clothed, but you're not warm. And he that earneth wages earneth wages to put them in bags with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. So the point is is made that their toil has increased while their blessings and prosperity have stopped. Why? Because they were toiling uh, because they were toiling for Adonai, right? And because of empty threats, they began toiling for themselves. So they began toiling for Adonai, but then they began, uh, because of empty threats that were against them, they stopped doing what God uh, wanted them to do. And because of empty threats, they began toiling just for themselves for survival and, in, and in, uh, instead. And as a result, they fell behind instead of moving ahead. Verse 8, go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house. And I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, says the, says the Lord. Basically, he's saying, get off your tukuses and get back to work. Bring wood to the temple mount instead of your own property. Build the house, not your house. What is the house? The house is the house of the Lord, right? You want blessing and prosperity again? Ask whose house you build. You know, ask whose house you're building anyway. Are you building your house or are you building God's house? You want to be blessed, you want to prosper, build God's house. Don't build your house. Verse 9, you look for much, and lo, it came to little. And when ye brought it home, it did blow up. It it, it did blow, uh, it, uh, let me just read that over again. Verse 9, ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when ye brought it home, I did blow up on it. Why? saith the Lord of hosts, because of mine house that is wasted, and ye run every man unto his own house. So basically, want to know why you're not getting ahead? Always feeling like you're taking one step forward and two steps back? Because it's me who is bringing all your toil to naught. Why would I do this? Says God. Because you have given up on my house. I, and so I have given up on helping you build yours. So the Stones to Knock says that the blowing in this verse, let me read that part again. It says, I did blow up on it. So the blowing in this verse uh, mentions uh, is, is symbolic and is meaning crop failure by the grain that is scorched by the hot winds. Verse 10, chapter 1, verse 10, therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. So God even sets nature against us when we are out of his divine will. If everything is going wrong in your life, check and see if you've stepped out of his will. If so, step back in it. If not, it's satanic oppression. Simply press on and expect a breakthrough just around the corner. Chapter 1, verse 11, and I called for a drought upon the land and upon the mountains and upon the corn and upon the new wine and upon the oil and upon that which the ground bringeth forth and upon men and upon cattle and upon all the labor of your hands. Whoa! Even within exile, for though uh, they were free to rebuild, they were still under the control of Persia. Even within exile, punishment is laid out in Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28. Uh, and that still comes to pass. Here, in this verse, we see, uh, we see God explaining that because of their disobedience to the Torah, their disobedience to the law, their disobedience to the words and the commands of God, uh, and not continuing to build the temple, that their punishment 
uh, it, it takes them over. The punishments that are described in Deuteronomy chapters 27 28. I can see God throwing up his hands and saying, you cried for an opportunity to do this, and once I give it to you, you shrink at the first bout with antagonizers and end up building your own houses instead. So Pirkei Avot uh, 221 says, Rabbi Tafron, he would also say, it is not incumbent upon you to finish the task, but neither are you free to absolve yourself from it. Hebrews 11.13 these all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. John 8:56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and saw it, and was glad. Luke 9:62. And Yeshua said unto them, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Much of what we do in life, we will never see the end result. For it, is, uh, for it is really for the ones who are to come after us. Like the oak tree you planted a few years back, you may never see it as a mighty oak as it will be 50 years from now. But your children and grandchildren will. Maybe they'll set up a swing set in it or something. Much of what we do here and now paves the way for the coming generations. It's the whole Olympic passing the torch kind of thing. Run like you're the one uh, who will and must finish the race, even though you're probably not going to be the one that finishes it, and somebody on will, else will carry on after you. Thus, we should not get discouraged or overwhelmed if the task seems too large for us. Haggai 1.12 says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of uh, Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obey the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent to them, sent him, and the people did fear before the Lord. So basically, message received. The leaders and the people get the point and see the error of their ways and resume the work on the temple. Job 28, 28 says, And unto man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Psalm 111, 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding ha, uh, have all that, that do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Proverbs 1, 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9, 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And finally, Proverbs 15.33, the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. And before honor is humility. So it's great that these elders heard Haggai, knew that he was speaking uh, God's words, that the message that he had was from the Lord. They feared God, and they took the message to heart and started obeying it. Haggai's first message is a stirring challenge to the people through their political and spiritual leaders, Zerubbabel and Joshua. The people looked in uh, the uh, decoration of their own houses, verse 4, while doing nothing for God's house. Haggai twice said, consider your ways in verses 5 and 7. Literally, this literally means um, uh, that their neglect of the temple has resulted in his judgment on them, verses 6 through 9. Their self-centered efforts cannot be satisfied because God is not blessing. Their first priority should have been that God would be glorified, and this fact should be evident in the life of every believer today. And this is uh, a quotation from the Keyword Study Bible. 
So chapter 1, verse 13, Then spake Haggai the Lord's message, and the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did the work of the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And in the fourth and twentieth day of the sixth month, in the second year of, of Darius the king, when we, when we um, step out and obey in faith and not obey by feelings, God provides the motivation. God provides the feelings. So if God tells us to do something and we don't feel like it, but we step out in faith nonetheless, the feelings will come later. And the strength we need will come to continue the task. Zechariah 4.6 Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord uh, unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This is an important and applicable lesson that we believers need to be reminded of today. Matthew 28.20 says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. So that completes the hubbub of Haggai chapter 1. So this is just going to basically be a part 1. So next month I will do part 2, and uh, we'll uh, have a, a lively commentary on Haggai chapter 2, and we'll continue the hubbub of Haggai then. Guys, thanks so much for listening. Shalom and Shavua Tov. Thanks for joining me for the monthly musings this month. Shalom, everyone. This is Chris Shoemaker, also known as Yehuda Ben Shamer, and welcome to the monthly musings. This is part two of the hubbub of Haggai, and we're in Haggai chapter two, dealing with the second prophetic message Haggai delivered to the people, which took place on the 21st of Tishri, 4280, which is an estimated approximate Hebrew date, but is the seventh day of Sukkot and is the equivalent to the Gregorian date, October 17th, 520 BCE. Now, Haggai 1 through 5 says, In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, came the word of the Lord to the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? So this is in reference to Solomon's temple that was destroyed. He's basically saying, Who saw Solomon's temple in, in, in all its glory? And the verse continues, and how do you see it now? How does it compare? What does it look like? You know, how is it different from Solomon's temple? Continuing on, is it not in your eyes in comparison as nothing? In other words, it it's definitely doesn't have the same pizzazz and glory as Solomon's temple. It's, it, it looks inferior. It looks less than. Verse 4, And now be strong, O Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, Adonai Zevaot. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Fear not. We're not to judge and make decisions on things based on our physical sight alone. After all, looks can be deceiving, and we're not to judge a book by its cover. The ornate entrapments of the temple are just icing on the cake, but not necessary for such a temple to be greater. It's what's inside that temple that counts, and the Shekinah can fill a skin and cloth tent, such as the tabernacle erected by Moses, just as much as it did the brick-and-mortar uh, temple of Solomon's temple. 
So a second temple without all the visual pizzazz is no obstacle for God. This second temple would end up being greater than Solomon's temple. Why? After all, the Shekinah glory cloud never came down on it as it did the tabernacle or as it did Solomon's temple. It never came down and filled it. So why is the second temple greater? I'll tell you why. Because it was the one, it was the very temple that Messiah himself would eventually walk into and cleanse and minister in and teach in and proclaim himself as the Messiah in during the Feast of Tabernacle. Now, in the Talmud, it says in Sukkah 53b, He who has not witnessed the rejoicing at the water-drawing huts has throughout his whole life witnessed no real rejoicing. So what? That's not in the Torah, right? So what does it have to do with us or Yeshua for that matter? That's just a man-made tradition. Okay, well, hold up. Don't be so quick. Yeshua wasn't against man-made traditions or oral Torah as long as it didn't nullify the written Torah. For the Brit Chiresha, the Renewed Covenant, the New Testament, New Testament, we find Yeshua keeping holidays that were commanded in the Torah, but also holidays and traditions not commanded in the Torah. During the Last Supper, Yeshua went by the, the traditional Haggadah of that time, the liturgy of the Passover Seder. You don't find it in the Torah. It was tradition. We find him in the temple during Hanukkah, which is the Feast of de Dedication. Um, and in John chapter 7, we find him at this water-pouring ceremony that's mentioned in the Talmud. Uh, it's called Simchat Beit Hashova during the last day of Sukkot, which is called Hoshana Rabbah, the Great Salvation, mentioned in the ta uh, Talmudic text below that I quoted, Sukkah 53b. John 7, 37-38 says, On the last day, the great day of the feast, Yeshua stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If one carefully studies Talmud and Jewish tradition, you'll find where Yeshua even added himself into these things, as, as well as the prophecies in the Torah and the Tanakh, the Old Testament. So uh, how did this water-pouring ceremony become such a fixed part of Judaism, even unto this day? Uh, okay, so when the Holy Temple stood in Jerusalem, one of the special uh, Sukkot observances was to pour water on the altar. The drawing of the water for this purpose was preceded by an all-night celebration in the temple courtyard, and on the 15 steps of the inner courtyard uh, stood the Levitical priest, the Levites, where uh, they stood the Levites while playing a variety of uh, musical instruments. Now, sages danced and juggled burning torches, and huge oil burning lamps illuminated the entire city. So, you know, this is actually where Hanukkah comes from. It's called the Festival of Lights. So Hanukkah was actually modeled after Sukkot. So the singing and dancing went on until daybreak when a procession would make its way to the uh, Shiloh Spring, which flowed in the valley below the temple to draw waters with joy. One who did not see this uh, water join, uh, drawing ceremony declares the sages of the Talmud, as we said before, has not seen true joy in his life. So while pouring uh, or while water was poured each day of the festival, the special celebrations uh, held on Kol Hamoed since many elements um, of the celebration, such as the playing of musical instruments, are forbidden on Yom Tov. This according to Chabad.org. So. Um, so, so let me just reiterate that. While the water was poured on each day of the, uh, of the festival, the special celebrations 
uh, were held on a day called Kol Hamoad. Uh, since many of the elements of celebration, such as the you know uh, playing of musical instruments, are uh, forbidden on Yom Tov or on the good day, as it says, and again that according to Chabad.org. So. Uh, Chabad.org also says, Today we celebrate these joyous celebrations by holding Simchat Beit HaShova, the joy of water drawing, events in the street with music and dancing. The Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rebbe initiated the custom of holding such celebrations on Shabbat and Yom Tov as well, without musical instruments, of course. The fact that we cannot celebrate as we did in the temple, says the Rebbe, means that we are free to celebrate the joy of Sukkot with singing and dancing every day of the festival. So uh, why was this ritual so significant, uh, especially in the time of Yeshua Messiah? Well, first off, the Kohanim, or the Levitical priest, had a special schedule during Sukkot that they had to keep. The Kohanim were divided into three divisions, and each day of Sukkot, there was a special ritual. Division one of the Kohanim sacrificed the animals and items prescribed out in Numbers chapter 29. The second division went to the eastern gate of the temple and headed to the uh, Mosa Valley, where they would discard the sacrificial ashes at the start of Shabbat. Uh, while there, they would cut 25-foot-long willows, and, would line, and they would line them up across the road, holding these willows, kind of like an arch, right? And about 30 feet behind them would be another row of priests with willow branches. They would then uh, begin to march, waving the willows in a swishing motion, creating the sound of wind, symbolizing the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh. Now, Division Three of the Kohanim, in the meantime, would be headed down to the Pool of Siloam, meaning peaceful flowing waters. See John chapter 9, 7, and 11. Now, the Kohen Agadol, or the high priest, was in this third group, and he had a golden flask and drew water uh, called the Maim Chaim. Now, Mayim Chaim is a Hebrew word translated living waters. Why? Because any water that is flowing is considered living. The high priest uh, assistant had a silver flask of wine. Both groups would return to the temple with the sound of the shofar, the ram's horn, upon their arrival. One man would play the flute. The flute player was called the pierced one and symbolized the Messiah because Messiah was pierced, right? So you, we can find this in Psalm 22, 16, Zechariah 12, 10, John 19, 34 through 37, and Revelation 1, 7. And the flute players led the procession with the wind because they're wind instruments, right? And the water, which was carried by the priest. The willow carriers would, in, would circle the brazen sacrificial altar seven times while singing Psalm 118, 25, and 26. The sacrificial division of the priest would lay the slain sacrifices on the altar. Then the Kohen Hagadol, the high priest, and his assistant then ascended the altar, and all Israel gathered into the temple courts and sang a song called Maim, water, based on Isaiah. 12.3, according to the Mishnah in Sukkot 5.1. Then the high priest would pour out the water on the southwest corner of the altar on the horn, and then the wine was poured out as the willow holders leaned their branches against the altar to make sort of like a tabernacle, a sukkah. According to the Mishnah, Rosh Hashanah 1.2f says that it's during Sukkot that God decides who gets rain for the next year and how much. Sukkot is also the time after Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonements, uh, when it is said that the fate of each human being is decided for the next year. And all the books in heavens, all the account books in heavens are closed. 
So this is probably another reason for the water pouring ceremony, a type of supplication for seasonal rains. These rituals and ceremonies are nowhere commanded in the Torah, but the rabbis and sages feel by the uh, spelling inconsistencies in the text of Numbers 29 that spells the word mayim, uh, that, they're, that uh, they nonetheless base their tradition of water pouring ceremony on the Torah itself. So Rabbi Akiva said in Tanit 2b, asserted that the water libation was alluded to in the Torah with the use of the plural form nesekaah, drink offerings thereof, on the sixth day, according to Numbers 29.31, reflecting that one of the two libations consists of water. So, um, based on Rashi's text of Numbers 29.18, uh, Gil Marx is quoted as saying, On Sukkot, even the humblest of all have its place on the altar. Water? The, uh, the Midrash tells us that at the time of creation, the waters cried out to God that everyone has his place on the altar. Oxen, sheep, wheat, barley, wine, oil. All except water. The waters threatened to engulf the world until God promised them that on the festival of Sukkot, Israel would offer a libation of humble water upon the altar, accompanied by Simchat Beit Hashova, the joy of the water drawing, which was so great that it brought, uh, it brought people to begin to prophesy. Uh, the water libation on Sukkot is not written explicitly in the Torah, but only elusively. Three seemingly uh, minute anomalies in the Hebrew phrasing of the laws of the offering on the second, sixth, and seventh day of the festival of Sukkot enable us to trace the letters of the Hebrew word mayim, which is water, running through the Hebrew text. So, you know, that's, that's kind of where these traditions come from. It's not specifically spelled out in the Torah, but is kind of alluded to, hidden in the text, uh, by extrapolating the various spellings. So Yeshua had no problem with it and included himself within the derived tradition. A custom, a tradition, something that the Pharisees and Sadducees did, something that made it into the Talmud that Yeshua didn't oppose but participated in and used to proclaim his divine messiahship. Therefore, it stands to reason his own disciples were there and participated too, and all believers that came after his resurrection and ascension, that they participated in the water pouring ceremony as well. So we now, um, we see now why he said in scripture, Yeshua, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. A further fulfillment was when Yeshua was executed on the Roman cross and blood symbolizing wine because we said that wine was also poured on the altar during the water pouring ceremony, and water flowed, according to John 19.34. Now, it is, it is said by the, the late um, Ron Wyatt, which was a uh, Christian archaeologist, he believed that the Ark of the Covenant uh, and, and the other furnishings of the, of, the tabern of the temple was underneath Golgotha in a cave uh, that had a tunnel system that led to the Temple Mount itself. So when the temple was under attack, they moved these inner, inner sanctuary items through this tunnel and hid them in this cave, and that when the earthquake happened and the earth split open, when Yeshua was on the cross, that the blood and water that flowed from his side dripped down into this crevice, and it hit the mercy seat of the uh, Ark of the Covenant. So that's, that's what has been said and what's been believed. So um, Adonai, the Father, God the Father, obviously didn't have a problem with this man-made ritual uh, of water pouring, for he told Yeshua to go and deliver such a message 
you know, that, uh, um, you know, anyone who's thirsty, come and let him drink. Uh, because Yeshua never said anything that his father didn't tell him to say, right? So whatever Yeshua said, his father told him to say. This according to John 5, 19 and 30, John 8, 28, and John 14, 28. So um, verse 6 says, For thus saith Adonai Zevo, the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Rashi tells us in uh, in this verse that, Quote, one more nation will subdue you, the Greeks, but their dominion will last only for a short time, uh, end quote. This, in turn, refers to the Maccabean or the Hasmonean revolt, um, where Judah Maccabee and his brothers took back and restored this very temple that's being spoken of in Haggai chapter 2, uh, that the returning exiles built, and the very same temple which Yeshua uh, walked into and ministered in many, many times, especially during the Feast of uh, tabernacles and uh, the festival of Hanukkah, the, the the feast of dedication. Verse 7, and I will shake nations and the desire of all nations shall come and I will fill this house with the glory, says the Lord of hosts. Wow, I will shake all nations. Yeshua came to shake things up and the desire of all nations because Yeshua is prophesied to be the desire of all nations. I will come and fill this house with the glory of the Lord, says the Lord of hosts. So the Shekinah glory was embodied in Messiah Yeshua. So when Yeshua entered the temple, it's the exact same and the equivalent to the Shekinah glory of God filling the temple as it did the tabernacle in Solomon's temple. So this verse, verse 7, um, is, in ref is, is a reference that Haggai said and thus told the people that this is the temple that Messiah would visit. And because of this, nations would join themselves to Israel and the commonwealth and or convert and visit the temple. Now, the keyword study Bible helps clarify what I'm trying to say by saying this. The interpretation of the phrase, the desire of all nations, is much disputed. Some versions translate the clause, they will come with the wealth of all nations. This is explained by the construction of the sentence in Hebrew. The verb shall come is plural and thus can support the idea of an individual person being represented by uh, the word desire. It is best understood as a reference to the nations that will one day bring their offering to God to be consecrated for uh, his service. I say precisely because of the coming of Messiah, because why would the nations come and convert to Judaism? Judaism, after the time of Messiah ministering on the earth, would stop evangelistic and missionary activities. So in other words, they were uh, the Jewish people were missionaries and evangelists before the time of Yeshua. After the time of Yeshua, they stopped their missionary activities. So how and why would people know or be convinced to come? I still firmly believe that one can apply this verse to the coming of Messiah because one day it is prophesied that Gentiles will celebrate Sukkot and bring an offering. In the time to come, Gentiles will celebrate Sukkot along with the Hebrews and Jews. Let's go to Zechariah chapter 14. Verse 1 and 2 says, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh. And the day of the Lord is, is alluding to Yom Kippur, which is the beginning of the fall festivals. Um, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the house rifled, and the women ravished. And half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. These two verses, along with uh, verse 5, 
indicate that the Battle of Armageddon and the return of the Messiah happens all in one shot. Prophecy points to it being around the time of Sukkot, possibly the last day when tradition says that the books of judgment in heaven are sealed for the year and the fate of the world and everyone in it is set for the coming year. Zechariah 14.3, Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. Verse 4, And his feet shall stand in that day on the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a great valley, and half the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. These verses speak of Messiah's physical return to earth, when, when Messiah Yeshua returns in physical form. Verse 5, And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, or the valley of the mountains shall reach unto um, Azal. Yea, ye shall flee like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all his saints with thee. Wow. And the Lord my God shall come. And all the saints with thee. That kind of reminds me of Revelation when Yeshua returns. Because when Yeshua returns, he's going to bring all his saints with him. So this kind of alludes to Yeshua coming back, uh, God coming back in the physical bodily form of Yeshua. So in other words, that verse 5 also talks about remnants, uh, remnant and survivors fleeing to safety. Okay, uh, moving on to verses 6 through 11. And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea. In summer and in winter shall it be. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. Again, alluding to a physical form, God being in physical form, uh, and we know that as Messiah Yeshua. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day there shall be one Lord and his name one. And the land shall be turned as a plain from Gibeah to Remnon, south of Jerusalem, and it shall be lifted up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate until unto the place of the first gate, unto the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananiel unto the king's winepress, and men shall dwell in it, and there shall no more uh, shall be no more utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. Basically, we take back occupied Israeli land, and Jerusalem is safe and secure once again. Verses 12 through 15 of Zechariah 14, and this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people who have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall be consumed away while they stand upon their feet, and their eyes shall be consumed away in their sockets, and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. And it shall come to pass in that day that a great tumult from the Lord shall be among them, and they shall lay hold every one of his on the hand of his neighbor, and his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor. And Judah also shall fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the heathen round about shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance, and shall be the plague of the horse, of the mule, of the camel, of the donkey, of the beasts, uh, that shall be in these tents as this plague. So here we see Jerusalem smite her enemies, and the enemy is plagued. Could it be a flesh-eating virus, or the result of uh, radiation poisoning, or could it be entirely something else? Who knows? 
All we know is that no matter how you slice it, it doesn't look good for the bad guys, right? So verses 16 through 21 of Zechariah 14, And it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which come against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and, it sh and, sh and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. It shall be that whosoever shall not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt shall not go up and come, and come not, that have no rain. There shall be the plague, wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to the, keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In that day shall there be um, upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord, and the pots to the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judea or in Judah, I should say, shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts, and all they that sacrifice shall come and take them, and seed therein. And in that day there shall be no more Canaanite in the house of, uh, of the Lord of hosts. So, when Messiah returns, the Gentiles work, will convert um, and keep, well, they'll either convert or be part of the commonwealth of Israel. And they will keep the Feast of Sukkot because one law is for the Jew and for the sojourner that dwells among them, for the, you know, the native as well as those that sojourn among them, as the Torah says. So those who, who don't will not get rain for the coming year and be plagued with famine and drought. So um, prophetically, we learn that in the, uh, the Messianic kingdom age, the millennium, it will be a biblical commandment for Gentile nations to observe the Feast of Tabernacles. The nations that choose to disobey this command to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem, because Sukkot is one of the three pilgrimage festivals, right? If they refuse to come during Feast of Tabernacles to Jerusalem, um, God the Father will, will curse their land and their people with drought. In fact, instead of uh, uh, people being afraid of Jews and, and being anti-Semitic, we read prophetically that in those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all the languages of the nations and shall take hold of the kanaf, the corners of the garments of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So these Gentiles are literally grabbing onto what? What is on the corner of the garments of the Jewish people? Zitzit. The ritual fringes of the Jews. And I would assume that this prophetic passage is speaking of Messianic Jews. It might be a good it might be good for Messianic Jews to have to start wearing these fringes as commanded by Torah in order to uh, literally fulfill this commandment and for uh, to help fulfill this prophecy, to allow this prophecy to take place. So uh, uh, those who want to be like Jesus quote unquote, it should be noted that uh, Yeshua observed all the biblical holidays and the Jewish traditional holidays such as Hanukkah. So it's a tradition and not a biblical commandment, but he still kept Hanukkah. So it was the Feast of Tabernacles that Yeshua's own unbelieving brothers mocked him and urged him to make himself known publicly. I don't know, maybe they hoped to see him get arrested because at that point they thought he was out of his mind. Now, I'm not a fan of Mani Judah personally, but I do like what he says uh, about the uh, future Sukkot to come. He talks about how the scripture uh, definitely says much about the Feast of Tabernacles and uh, uh, in the future. Uh, the reference to the tribulation saints 
uh, described in the book of Revelations, he says, is about the Feast of Tabernacles. Revelation 7, 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation, and of all the tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands. And Revelation 7, 14 through 15, And I said to him, Lord, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they shall serve him day and night in the temple. And he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them. The palm branches reveal the setting for the tribulation saints. They are gathered for the Feast of Tabernacles, which is also called the Feast of Ingathering, right? This is why the Lord's throne is spread like a tabernacle over them. This is to confirm by the this is confirmed by the prophet Zechariah, as we read in the passages above. He says the first event upon the Lord's return to Jerusalem after the day of the Lord, Yom Kippur, is the observance of the Feast of Tabernacles. So Zechariah 14, 16, Then it will come to pass that any who are left of the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and celebrate the Feast of Booths. You know, this all makes sense because the Feast of Trumpets symbolizes, or Yom Teruah, symbolizes the resurrection. The Day of Atonement uh, symbolizes the day of the Lord. So it follows that tabernacles is the true ingathering of all his saints in Jerusalem. Apparently, God intends to use this future feast of tabernacles in the kingdom as a reference uh, counter for the number of years in the millennial reign. The feast of tabernacles, therefore, will commemorate not only our ancestors' exodus from Egypt, but also the greater exodus, the exodus of the tribulation saints, the final generation leading into the promised kingdom. This is consistent with God's promise concerning the kingdom of David. King David served as king of Israel for 40 years and held the greatest amount of territory in Israel's history. God promised to raise up David's booth or David's tabernacle, as we should say, in the same manner in the Messiah's kingdom, Amos. So Amos 9, 11-12 says, In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David. And wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and build it as in the day of old, and that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations who are called by not my name declares the Lord who does this. So even though it's not required for Gentiles to dwell in Asuka, Leviticus 23:42 says, You shall dwell in booths seven days, and all Israel lights born shall dwell in booths. Nonetheless, we see in Zechariah that Gentiles will become part of Israel's commonwealth and or convert and therefore keep Sukkot anyhow. So we see that the, 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 um, uh, the Gentiles will not only keep the festival of Sukkot, but they will also dwell in uh, Sukkah as well. Because remember in the Torah it says that it is one law for the, for the Israelite or the Jew and the stranger that sojourns among them. So if the stranger that sojourns among them is part of the commonwealth, it's one law for Jew and Gentile. It's not two separate different laws. So the Talmud relates that in the future when pagans will complain to God about his preferential treatment to the Jews, he will uh, tell them that it's because the Jews accepted and followed the Torah. So they're not so much the chosen people, but the choosing people because they chose to follow God's laws. The pagans will then plead, offer, uh, offer us the Torah anew and we will follow it. You foolish people, God will answer. He who prepares in advance of Shabbat can eat on Shabbat, but he who makes no preparations, what can he eat? Nevertheless, 
um, I have an easy commandment called Suka. Go and fulfill it. Why is it called an easy commandment? Because it has no expenses. Immediately, each one will build a booth, a suka, on his roof, but God will cause the sun to blaze as if it were the summer solstice. Each one will then uh, kick his suka and leave. Thereupon God will laugh, as it is said, he that sits in the heavens laugh. This according to Talmud Avodah Zara 3a. Although this passage is difficult for several reasons, I would like to focus on one of its main themes, um, that being that the Gentiles or the pagans will not, uh, will not be able to keep the commandment of Sukkot. Uh, the reason this is so strange is that of all holidays, Sukkot has been perceived as the most universal and encompassing of all the nations of the world. The rabbis uh, teach in Talmud, uh, in the Talmud, it says in Sukkot 55b, Rabbi Eliezer said, why are 70 offerings brought on Sukkot? For the merit of the 70 nations of the world. Rashi makes his comment to be forgiveness for them, the 70 nations which comprise the world, so that rain shall fall over all the earth. The sages stress that Sukkot has a universal element which is clearly absent in other festivals. Passover represents the exodus of Egypt and the emergence of the Jewish nation. Shavuot, Pentecost, celebrates the giving of the Torah to the Jews. It seems paradoxical to find this expression of the inability of the pagans to relate to God specifically in the context of Sukkot. We may theorize that specifically on Sukkot, when Jews concern themselves with the welfare of non-Jews, pagans were expected to respond and to relate to God directly. There is, however, another passage which makes this appropriate uh, approach untenable. This passage from the prophecy of Zechariah describes the aftermath of the apocalyptic battles when the vanquished nations will celebrate Sukkot. This heightens the difficulty of the story from the uh, Talmudic quoted earlier. While the Talmud contains many explanations of biblical teachings, it does not have a mandate to argue with the prophets. Our question then is quite simple. How can the Talmud relate that in the future pagans will be unable to keep Sukkot when the prophet tells us clearly that they will. I believe that it is the resolution of this apparent contradiction lies the essence of Sukkot. There are two distinct aspects to the holiday of Sukkot represented by two commandments in Torah. Um, also, in the 15th day of the seventh month, when you, have in when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast to the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath, and you shall take on the first day the boughs of goodly trees, branches, and palms, and the boughs of thick trees and willows of the brook. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days, and you shall keep it as a feast of the Lord seven days in a year. It shall be a statue forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths seven days. All who are Israelite born shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 23, 39-43. The Torah speaks on the one hand of the taking of the four species of fruit at harvest time, and on the other hand sitting in a sukkah, a tabernacle, as the people did who, as the people who fled Egypt did. Therefore, See, uh, see two commandments. One, taking the four species. Two, live in booths. One commandment has an ag agricultural uh, impetus, the other a historical one. The agricultural aspect of the holiday is clearly universal, while the historical aspect 
uh, is particularly to the Jews. Now, this is according to uh, uh, Um I don't necessarily believe that this, you know, this to be true. I believe that the Gentiles will celebrate um, the Feast of Tabernacle in all its fulfillment, just as the Jewish people celebrated the Feast of Tabernacle. It won't be two separate things for them. It'll be one celebration because the Gentiles will be part of the Commonwealth of Israel. Perhaps many will immigrate to Israel proper. There is a loose tradition that claims that if you convert to Judaism, you're considered born again as a native Israeli based on Psalm 87. Again, greater, uh, uh, speaking of the, the, the uh, temple again that um, Haggai is speaking of, uh, again, greater due to the visitation of Messiah, the Shekinah in human form, if you will, uh, will come into this temple. So collectively, verses 6 through 9, says God throughout this passage is called Lord of hosts, which means Lord of armies, Adonai Zevaot. What a comforting name for the people of Israel who felt that they were, in, that they were tiny, powerless province of Persia. His presence is clarified as God confirmed that his spirit was, was in their midst, according to the original covenant at Mount Sinai, by which they became God's people, Haggai 2.5. Doubtless, such quote-unquote shaking as mentioned in this verse may have occurred at the time of the Persian Empire, yet these words have much greater significance. This according to the key, uh, the keyword study Bible. Uh, may, I remind the, may I remind the listener that at Yeshua's death, it was this very temple that was shaken, and the veil separating the holy place from the holy of holies was torn in two. We can find this in uh, Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 54, right? Okay, also, in a time to come, all the nations will be shaken with worldwide divine judgment, according to Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 26 through 29, uh, according to Joel 3.16 and Matthew 24, 9 through 30. And so for the sake of time, um, well, I'll, I think, you know, we're, we're kind of at the tail end, so I'll go ahead and read them. Hebrews 12, 26 uh, through 29 says, Whoso voice then shook, uh, Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I, will, I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of the things that are made, uh, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Joel 3.16, for the Lord shall also... Or for the Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. Matthew 24, 29 through 30, immediately after the tribulation of those days, shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the star shall fall from heaven and the power of the heaven shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the son of man in heaven. And then shall all tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So this concludes um, our uh, commentary on the book of Haggai and concludes our lesson uh, in the series, The Hub of, of Haggai. Guys, thanks so much for listening. Uh, shalom and Shavuot Tov. 
Thanks for watching! Don't forget to press the like button as well as the subscribe button if you haven't done so already and the notification bell that'll let you know every time I make a new video. And don't forget to share this with a friend. Also, visit our website at abrahamsdescendants.com. Thanks. Shalom. Abrahamsdescendants.com. Getting back to the first century in a 21st century way. Thanks for watching. Stay connected by subscribing to our other social media accounts and visiting our website at abrahamsdescendants.com.